You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 97. Today, I talk with Dr. Megan Mello, and I know a lot of you can relate to this topic. What happens when you're overwhelmed and someone says, maybe you should just smile more? We've certainly had a lot of advice on how to feel better that hasn't actually made us feel better. This episode has practical tips for you. And speaking of practical, I put some of my favorite books onto the BossSurgery.com website. Head to BossSurgery.com and at the bottom, click Boss Books. And don't forget to rate and review the show and share with your friends. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have a great episode today. I am so excited to talk to Dr. Megan Mello. She is a family practice and obesity medicine specialist, and she has the podcast Ending Physician Overwhelm. And I'm so excited to have her come on today because she has some really great lessons for us to learn. And as you know, the boss series is lessons not taught in residency. And her thought is that we should start unlearning what you learned in residency. And doesn't that just fit perfectly? Because I completely agree with her approach to all of this. It makes perfect sense. So Dr. Mello, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I am a family and obesity medicine physician in Seattle, Washington, and I'm currently working part-time in a private practice doing a blend of primary care and obesity medicine. And like you, I decided I needed something more at some point. And so I also got trained at the life coach school to be a certified coach. And for that coaching work, initially, I thought I would really be serving patient care, but ultimately I pivoted to something that's a different passion area of mine, which is coaching physicians on burnout. I primarily work with women physicians, addressing the intersection of people-pleasing and perfectionism habits, lack of boundaries with burnout. Certainly, I think the systems that we work in in American healthcare and probably many other parts of the world are extremely flawed and challenging. But my take on it is that we don't have to wait for those systems to be fixed in order to start feeling better. Like there are things that we can do now. And we're going to talk more about that. And I'm so excited to be here. So thanks for having me. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think the biggest flaw of that I hear from, about coaching is like, well, you have to tell me I have to change, but the systems have to change. <laughs> and I don't think anyone is disagreeing that the system needs to change, but how long is that going to take? And people are suffering now. And right. I exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I did, I too like wanted to, I wanted to make myself feel better with, with coaching and I wanted to learn the skills with patients but you can't see the suffering and not try to find a solution for it. And I suspect you probably felt the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. I have been doing some work in physician wellness, gosh, for about eight years. And for a while I had a position as a physician wellness champion. And, you know, it's kind of the usual things of like, well, we'll share, share with people the importance of sleep and yoga and plant-based diet and all these things. And, and, I'm not saying any of those things are bad because there's certainly good health choices that I would advocate for anybody, but it's very hard in a stress system where people are overworking and feeling overburdened to just give them this advice of like, well, you just need to spend time doing this and that when, you know, they're already taking charts home with them, taking inbox work home with them, 
um, responding to portal messages, rushing out of the house in the morning to round on patients before going to clinic. There's so many things that are so challenging about practicing modern medicine. And there are things that we have adapted over time as habits that are working against us as we work within the system. So really seeing the system challenges for what they are and understanding that those need to change, but I'm not waiting for those to change, right? If I want to still practice medicine, I'm going to have to figure out what I need, how I'm going to show up in order to practice medicine within this system, right? Because most of us don't have the choice to practice medicine exactly as we want outside of some kind of concierge practice for patients who are perfectly willing to pay. And there's a lot of magical circumstances you could imagine there that aren't the reality for most of us, right? If we want to take care of patients in the American healthcare insurance system, we're going to need to figure out how are we going to do that? How are we going to take care of ourselves as the caregiver, putting our own oxygen mask on first before we continue the practice of medicine for years and years after residency. I completely agree. And a lot of these practices that we learn in residency served us well, right? You know, Mm -hmm. attention to detail and all that perfectionist thinking and people pleasing and making everyone happy. I mean, certainly that made us really great graduates. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and there's this interesting dynamic. I am also a student of Brene Brown and, and teach some of her work. And she talks about there's a striving for excellence, right? And that's kind of what we want, right? We want to be able to provide excellent care to be able to anticipate challenges and complications and all of that. And there's this toxic perfectionism, right? Which is really shame avoidance, right? It's avoiding shame, which is a universally painful emotion for all humans, avoiding shame at all costs, right? Think back to being a student or a resident on the wards, being pimped by attendings, you were so humiliated if you didn't know an answer, um, even if it was your first day on that rotation and you had no idea. I remember my first day on general surgery as a student and I was being asked about different kinds of suture material and which one was better. I was just like, I have no idea because we never learned about suture material <laughs> in class, right? And it was humiliating, even though like, there's no reason that I should have known. I wasn't, I just, I had no idea. So we encounter lots of those experiences and that repeated experience of having those negative emotions drives us to thinking, I have to know everything. I have to never fail, never be wrong, never not know an answer. And that's really quite damaging, right? Because none of us knows everything. None of us can anticipate every single, like we just can't do it. So there's this very important difference between striving for excellence and thinking that I have to be perfect at all costs. It's fascinating as you're talking, because I remember those pimp rounds and all too, and I always wanted to be the one with the right answer. I mean, I think a lot of us did, but I'm not sure I felt any, a huge amount of shame if I didn't get Mm -hmm. the answer. And certainly on the other side, it's, it's fascinating to think that me, when I ask the students questions, I'm asking the same questions I've asked a million times. And I actually don't have a huge attachment to whether they know it or not. It's, it's mostly a way for me to assess their knowledge and then impart knowledge. And for 
I know that you and I trained at the same school. So this idea of our feelings of shame are actually from based on our thoughts about it, that right. we attribute it to our training program and things like that. But it doesn't always come from that place. And now that I'm on the other side and asking the questions, rather, than, I don't actually feel terribly responsible for some students' levels of shame. And mm-hmm. just being aware of it, I think is helpful. But yeah. that's another one of those things that we were just never taught is that our feelings about ourselves are based on our thoughts about it, that we can actually challenge it, whether these are actually true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is a, an important point because you're right that not everyone will have that same experience. And yet it, it is part of medical culture in a lot of places, right? Where, you know, kind of failure is not allowed and, and failure can look like different things, right? It can look like Yes, not having a certain kind of knowledge or not being prepared to answer questions about some kind of obscure, you know, condition or you know, a number of things. But also each one of us comes into training from our own place, right? Our own experience of whether or not it was okay to disappoint others or whether or not it was okay to not do something right. You think about people who grow up sort of walking on eggshells in their home it's going to be a much more challenging situation, right? When they are on the wards and they are in that intense pressure, how are they going to be able to manage that? And we as teachers may not know sort of what's coming in for people, but just being mindful, of course, that it can be an experience that can be quite difficult for people and understanding if our trainees have an intense issue, right? With feedback that they're giving. Yeah, it's completely true because, a lot of times I think we think that people are going to respond as we respond and being able to tune in to how they're feeling is really helpful because if the goal, I tell them all the time, I was like, look, I, we just want you to get the, the importance. This is about your education. Something doesn't work for you. Let me know. And, and I tend to get good feedback on that as far as that, because I'm fairly open. I was like, just tell me whatever I'm here for you. And I think sometimes we just forget to say those things out loud is that we actually really are there for them. And that some of the things that we do for them are for what we think is good for them. And they need to provide us with feedback to let us know if that's not the case. Well, I'm just going to go back and get trained by you. And (laughs) we would just have such a different experience. I don't know. This is my little, my little inside joke. Women just took over so many things, right? Our experience of, of training would be different and we could fix the world, but that's, that's a different point. (laughs) So now let's say that we're talking about someone who has this level of perfectionist thinking. When did you first start recognizing this as a thing that was something discrete to point out as something that could be not, I shouldn't say fixed, understood, I think is probably the better way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I think again, for so many of us walking around with this, with this habit and really wanting to have great attention to detail and our medical work and all of that. But also what I see a lot is carrying over that thought of like, I should be doing everything perfectly into parenting, for example, right? Similar to the chaos of an emergency room, for example, right? Parenting is full of unpredicted occurrences, especially when we are talking about babies and toddlers and their range of emotions. And I think for for anyone, right, when you start becoming a parent, you think, oh, well, my baby's going to do this and I'm going to train my toddler to never have a meltdown in the store and everything's just going to go peachy keen. They're going to eat all their fruits and vegetables and I've got this thing figured out. And then you have your child 
right? <laughs> and they have their personality from a very young age and they have their blowouts and their tantrums and their preferences and, you know, interactions between the two of you. And when things aren't going well, if you've got that perfectionism habit and you're thinking you're doing it wrong all the time, then parenting is just steeped in shame for you, right? It's this it's this terrible experience instead of you and your child figuring each other out in those dynamics and setting healthy boundaries and limits with your child and helping them grow up into capable older children and, and sort of older adults, right? You miss out on the learning that comes along with parenting. You miss out on the joys that can be there. And instead, you're just feeling constantly like you're doing it wrong. (laughs) You basically just describe what it's like to go from residency to your first job. I mean, isn't that exactly like residency is all about telling you the tips that you're going to have when you have your job without actually preparing you for what really happens. (laughs) Right, right. And your role as a resident is so different from your role as an attending, right? And so, yeah, a lot of people come out of their residency training, they're in their first job, And they're looking around constantly for praise and evaluations. And as you know, as an attending, you don't get that much of either, right? You don't have somebody, I mean, you might have somebody shadowing you. You might have somebody doing some kind of mentoring, which is usually pretty scant in my experience. But a lot of the time you're kind of on your own and people might come up to you and say, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Well, I don't know. Can I? Like, am I allowed to? I don't know. Am I trained to do that? I've never done that before or haven't done one in a while. And it's ultimately your job to make the decision about whether or not you can do that thing, right? An example of that would be primary care, like people who maybe, you know, used to do IUDs, some in residency, but maybe didn't get that much experience putting them in, right? And now they're in a clinic setting that wants them to do IUDs. They don't have to do them, but I've had people who are like, oh, I don't know if I feel like I can, because uh, I only did a certain amount, but ultimately they're the ones who have to decide, am I going to do that? Am I going to get better at it and get experience with it? Or am I not? But it feels very odd to be able to make that decision yourself, right? Without kind of looking over your shoulder, well, where are the grownups? <laughs> <laughs> well, and you go into the clinic thinking that everyone does all the same things. It's going to be set up for you like in residency. You know, we forget that in residency, we're in established clinics that are used to the natural turnover of trainees Mm -hmm. and, you know, have systems in place that have been tested and there's a set volume as well. It can be so disoriented to go to a place where now you have to determine all of the protocols that you've taken for granted because they were already there. The volume is intermittent, either more or less than what you had before. Mm-hmm. And trying to now train the people to do the things that always happened automatically right. is definitely a altering condition. Yeah. It's like, ooh, delegation leading the team. I don't know about that. I never did that. <laughs> things just happened. Yeah. I don't know. They told me what to do and I did it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's such an interesting transition for people. You know, it's always going to be a pivot, right? coming out of that learning role and going into your grown-up job, if you will. But yes, depending on how things were in your residency, what I find too is a lot of people who are in the early phases of their attendinghood, you know, they keep wanting to ask permission from someone or they keep trying to assess everybody else's opinion. What do you think I should do? 
are you sure? You're like, and at some point we have to decide, well, actually I'm the one who makes the decision. Well, crap. I'm the one who is now the grown-up and needing to, to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be quite scary for people after a minimum of what, six, seven years being in that trainee role where you didn't get to make any decisions really. Mm-hmm. Or you were making them, but not realizing that it was there's so much already in place that the decisions we made were very small ones and not exactly like the whole full gamut of stuff, which has already been established. And I wanted to point out what you had mentioned, which was, I think, so helpful to consider is the role of evaluations and, and feedback that we get through residency. And the roles are different in residency. There are roles, there's, there's guidelines for everyone maybe Mm -hmm. onerously so, but there's a lot of things that are set in place and the residency is built on our survival. The residency program has to support the residents. Otherwise Mm -hmm. the residency program doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that is a completely different philosophy than your job who just wants to know if you're going to support the hospital and whether you sur- survive or not, or your support, or rather the support of you, doesn't matter as much in residency. And I think that expecting a supportive role, you might get lucky, but a lot of times you may just be a cog in the wheel and you're not going to get the feedback unless you ask for it. Mm-hmm. And they don't have necessarily the same incentives to keep you as you may think. What are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree with you. And another area that they spend a lot of time coaching physician clients on is people feeling that their jobs are trying to harm them emotionally, that they're not supported emotionally, perhaps in the same way that they were during residency, where they had colleagues that were in the trenches with them. They may have had faculty members who are looking out for them, staff who's doted on them, like, oh, look at these baby doctors. They're so cute, right? And we may not have that as we come out. And I think you're right that a lot of the systems that we may work in, they just want to kind of plug us in, right? They want us to see a certain amount of patients, right? Because that's what makes the money. They want us to show up for work, get the work done. And they're not tracking how many hours we're spending. They may be tracking metrics of certain quality metrics or certain patient satisfaction scores. And they often, of course, are doing that because uh, that's the world that we live in these days or reviews online and such. But they aren't really tracking how we're doing. They aren't really tracking how many hours it takes us to do the work, right? They aren't setting limits on that. In residency, right, we had duty hours, right? We had to we had to work within a certain number of hours and we had limits there. But as an attending, Sure, you might be scheduled for certain periods of time, right? But if it takes you five extra hours of charting, they're not regulating that. They might be able to see it in their systems, but they might criticize you for it, but they're not actually controlling it. And often when they see that you're spending more time, there are many systems that have this sort of punitive stance on it. Well, you need some remediation. You need to go faster. You need to do this or that without really checking in to see how are you doing? How are you feeling? How is this role working for you? And so it becomes this feeling of 
people doing it wrong, people not being enough, not being good enough at the job, instead of this conversation about what challenges, like, why are you spending five hours after work? Is there something we can do to help you? Are you using staff appropriately to help support your work? Or are you avoiding asking them to do anything? Or is there no staff, right? That's a huge challenge for people right now as well, right? There just aren't staff. Like many people are working without a medical assistant to help with rooming. So the doctors are doing the rooming. They're taking the vitals. They're checking the meds. They're cleaning the room in between without having taken anything off of their doctor work, right? And often the doctor themselves is not limiting what they're handling in the room, right? They might still be handling all seven complaints when they just, they never had time for that anyway. That's a total setup, right? For being unhappy, being crispy, being burnt out. And those conversations I think are generally not happening in the clinics and hospitals that we work in. How can the hospital or clinic support you? What do you need? It's just more of that sort of punitive aspect. Oh, I think that's such a great point too. And I love the questions that you asked too. And I think the most important aspect is to take all of those questions that should be asked. And the main question is, is who's doing the asking? And if you have a great job, that's fantastic. Your job is probably asking. If you Mm -hmm. do not have a great job, it doesn't mean you can't make it a great job. You just understand those are the questions that need to be answered. So then you start answering them and tell the, the job. So a lot of times we rely on the job to just know it's kind of like being in a relationship, you know, in marriage and say, my husband should just know to get me flowers. Why doesn't he just, why doesn't he just know? Well, if you want the flowers, sometimes you just have to figure out a way to get to to tell them and jobs are the same way. We just assume that everyone knows what we need. So first recognizing what we need. And then if they're not asking the questions, we help them ask the questions. That's how you can potentially make a good, good job, a better job because I think everyone really is trying the best that they can and no one is actually out to have you suffer or leave because, you know, we're at the very least expensive to replace. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. That's very true. Well, and I'll give you, I'll give you an example. When I was working in the job that I had been in for many years in an HMO setting, you know, I kind of got called into the principal's office for my attitude. People were like, you're being kind of rude. You're crispy. I would describe myself definitely as crispy at that point. You just seem really negative. They didn't ask me how I was doing. Mm-hmm. They didn't ask me what was going on. What they did was to tell me that my attitude was a problem. And I kid you not, this lady from HR handed me a bright pink folder full of full color printed pages on, you know, wellness activities. She's like, you can consider doing yoga. You should put a pretty picture on your desk. You know, like these are things that might help your attitude. And I just remember looking at this lady and just being like, this is incredibly insulting. And literally that week was when I made the decision, I'm going to have to get out of here. Now, I didn't have coaching at that time. I didn't have some of these resources and tools that I have now. And the picture could have been so different, but I realized how different of an experience it would have been if they had asked me, how are you? And if I felt safe to answer. And I I think that is something that is missing in the dynamics 
of our interactions as employed physicians working in these big systems. And I can understand probably a thousand reasons why they don't ask, right? They don't want to hear the emotional issues that we're going through. They know the challenges. Often there is a physician in that room as well. And that physician who's in the leadership role, who's doing the asking, may be just as burnt out as the person who's in trouble, right? I think there are many reasons why they don't explore that human element, but I still think it's wrong. I still think there are much better ways that the system could approach somebody who is being viewed as negative and critical and having difficult interactions with staff. How would you have answered that differently had they asked? Or how would you have answered it, I should say? I might have burst into tears, to be honest. Because I'll tell you that later that week, I went in for a medical appointment with someone I hadn't met before. I was having some varicose veins looked at, and the physician was a a female vascular surgeon who had left a very intensive practice where she was doing AAA repairs and really intense vascular surgeries. And she had opened this varicose vein clinic. And so I was in there for consult. She found out I was a physician and she's like, oh, how's it going? And that's when I burst into tears, right? And I had my breakdown and she was like, oh my God, you know, and I kind of just verbally vomited at her because she was a caring human who was looking me in the eyes and really understanding that I was so exhausted. I felt so overwhelmed. This was, gosh, what this was in 2020. So my kids were younger, four and seven at the time. I needed a human being to care about me. And she offered me that in that moment. And I can't say that the people who were sitting with me in the meeting didn't care at all, but definitely their approach was not, was not the same. And I don't know that I would have felt safe enough, quite frankly, to open up. I, I, I just don't know that I would have, but, but again, it's problematic. Like why, why didn't I feel safe to open up in that moment? Right. Cause I was fearing punishment censure, judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for many people. Yeah, it it makes a lot of sense. It's a complicated relationship from employee to employer. Mm -hmm. uh, But it also makes sense that you could, when your guard is down, and you're more able to access what you're thinking, for sure. So how do you help people overcome that aspect? Because there's a perfectionist thing, you already mentioned Mm -hmm. that we feel like we should be perfect. And that's basically how we're trained. So how do you start unlearning some of the the main things that we learn? I know perfectionist thinking is one and people pleasing being another, mm-hmm. you know, what a tough combination. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a, you know, it's the soup that, uh, that, that myself and many of my clients swim in. I think that when we do use many, many of the tools from the life coach school, really thinking about that dynamic between thoughts and feelings and actions, right? Because when we're trying to figure out the experiences that we're having over and over again, when we're feeling really overwhelmed and exhausted and burnt out, we have to understand if I'm feeling frequently frustrated, what am I thinking that's leading me to feel that way over and over again, right? And often it's people aren't helping me. I can't get the help I need. I don't have the resources I need. No one seems to understand how busy I am that they keep asking me to do things, right? Really kind of understanding those parts of it and looking 
to see where we can start to make changes, right? I think one of the challenges is that we look like we're such accomplished, high achieving, perfect human beings to so many other people who are not physicians that people don't know that we might be feeling exhausted and overwhelmed all the time, right? Like people have shared in my, in my new practice, people have talked about their primary care doctors leaving and maybe that doctor shared with them that they just can't work in the system anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're just, they're just leaving. They're just quitting. Right. And not going anywhere. And patients are shocked. They're like, Oh, I loved my doctor. She seemed so helpful. She seemed so great. We always loved going to see her, right? They had no idea perhaps how stressed that doctor was trying to hold all the things together. So a lot of the work that I do, yeah, kind of comes down to figuring out that thoughts and feelings and deciding we need to change the way that we're thinking about it, right? Stop fighting with our ideas about how the system should be and really start to be clear on the job is this, right? I see this many patients in a day. I have this volume of inbox work coming in. Like I have this responsibility and this responsibility. How am I? How are, how are this and what I think should be going on not fitting together, right? If I'm a primary care doctor and I see 10 patients per half day, but on every patient, I'm letting the patient share with me the 17 things that are on their list to cover. I'm never going to be on time. I'm never going to get those notes done. I'm never going to be able to accomplish all of that. I'm going to need to figure out how can I set some limits? How can I still be clear and kind with people? but also set reasonable expectations for this is a 20 minute appointment. And what we're going to be able to do today is I heard this and this, you know, sound like they're really important issues. So we're going to cover those and we'll make a plan for how we're going to address those things in the future. But this is what we're going to work on today. That agenda setting, that being willing to say no, that being willing to set limits is really unfortunately necessary right in the systems we work when we have a certain cadence that we don't control. It doesn't mean that people need to stay always within those jobs, right? Sometimes they'll really realize the way I want to care for somebody is different. And so I'm going to need to go figure that out. But rather than just jump and get a new job, right, we need to really spend some time figuring out what is it that I do want? What special skills do I have that I want to share with patients? So it's a little bit of that thoughts, feelings work, And then sort of really drilling into that, what do I want? Because we do not ask ourselves that question often. Right. And it's hard to answer. (laughs) What do you think that is? I think that we are exceedingly trained to not think about our own wants and needs, right? That's certainly a part of the training, right? Where we give up sleep, you know, we give up time with our families. And you think about this culture of working 80 hours a week as a resident. And for many of us, a combination of medical school and residency, we, we donated our 20s or a different time period. We didn't come right out of college. We donated it to other people in service of our medical learning. And we learn or maybe unlearned to think about what it is that we want. And we became highly reliant if we weren't before on external validation, right? Because we needed the good opinion of others. We needed that to be able to move through rotations, to get letters of recommendation, advance in our careers. And so 
we have to unlearn the need for external validation. Not that we should never feel pleasure from other people sharing compliments with us or liking our work, but we have to relearn that internal validation, right? That permission to ourselves to check in with ourselves on our wants and needs, to be able to ask myself, what do I want here? What's really important to me? What values do I hold? And how am I gonna, how am I going to live within those values within this system or find something that's a better match for me? Um, I think, yeah, it's that it's that reclaiming of self and tuning into your wants without it feeling selfish. Because it's not selfish. But we may have that mindset after being told for so many years that it's all about others, right? It's all about serving others. So not only were we a setup for perfectionist thinking, but a setup for people pleasing as well. And that sounds like essentially what we've learned how to do is to please other people, but pleasing ourselves is not focused on at the very least, if not even flat out disproved of. (laughs) Right, right. And not just not focusing on what we want, right? But, you know, how many of us can hold it, you know, for six, seven, eight hours at a time, right? How many, how many bladder issues are we going to have when we're older? Because, you know, we're like, I don't have time to pee. I got to go on. I got to move on to the next one. Not to say, right, that there aren't circumstances where we should do that. But if I'm in clinic or if I'm rounding in the hospital and I'm never taking a moment to pee, to drink water, to eat, because I feel like they're, you know, things are too busy, even though there's not like emergency circumstances and I'm not performing a 12 hour surgery. If I never give myself the moments to take care of myself throughout the day, I am harming myself, right? I'm, I'm continuing that narrative of like, I come last. Mm-hmm. And so we have to start with attending to those needs again, if we're ignoring them and start thinking about our wants. I agree. And it can be really challenging. I could tell you my biggest challenge I've been very vocal about is clinic. And it's just because it's a constant treadmill of problems and situations yeah. and lots of administrative tasks and patient needs and difficult situations all wrapped into one. Yes. And that you never know what's coming in the door. Yeah. You never know what's coming through the door. And a lot of times there's always a constant need. And so there's always more to be added. So if you cannot say no to things, you know, you're going to run into problems. So the element of trying to please everyone is really going to break you eventually. And as you've already seen, the reward for that is we snap at people and we get in trouble. Right. Right. Not only are you not actually pleasing anybody, (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now you're getting in trouble, even though you're working probably so hard, right? It's, it's a really, it's a really dark place for many people. And, and perpetuating the shame is that most, most physicians in that position do not talk to anyone about it, right? Because shame drives us to hide in the dark, right? I was just talking with somebody yesterday who was put on a performance improvement plan, right? Which is kind of the tool that's used, right? When we get called into the principal's office and hadn't told anybody because he was filled with shame. And I'm like, if you could talk to other people and sort of hear their stories, you would find out that this is more common than you realize, right? I had the perspective as a coach of working with many people who've been put on performance improvement plans, but we have no idea, right? Because our colleagues won't tell us, oh yeah, that happened to me too. Oh yeah. 
I went through this phase and, and I got in trouble and this is what they did. And I had to do this, this, and this thing. Right. And it's usually, it's usually not clinical in my experience. It's usually attitude, crispiness, <laughs> all of those things. Yes. And think of the message that we're getting. Like, not only are you not perfect, you are not pleasing people and right. we are unhappy with you. We are, we do not like that you are not doing all the things just so and being nice and smiling about it. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I always struggle to think like, where is the responsibility? Is it with the employer who should understand what's going on with the person or is it the person's responsibility to speak up for that? Yeah. And what are your thoughts on that interesting dynamic? <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting one. And again, I see this, I see this challenge within leadership setups that I've seen, right? Where there's often a physician and there's often a non-physician who may, may be clinical, maybe having come out of a nursing career, but maybe not. And it seems to me to create this dynamic where we no longer sort of come with the perspective of, I know how to take care of patients and I know how challenging that is for the physician, you know, person in that role and almost this element of starting to treat physicians like whiny children. And, and I know that there are some conversations I have heard leaders say, well, yeah, my boss just told me that you have to treat your physicians in your clinic like they're a bunch of whiny toddlers because they're always going to be complaining about stuff. It, like this was words out of my clinic chief's mouth. And I'm just like, God, what a terrible dynamic. And, and yes, I understand that physicians might complain a lot, but physicians might complain a lot because they are coming to it from a place of huge self-judgment, again, because of how we've been trained, right? Keeping yourself in line, keeping yourself in that perfectionist mode comes with a lot of self-judgment. And when we're judging ourselves so harshly, we're also going to be judging other people really harshly. So I think, I think it comes on both sides, frankly. I think there's kind of a loss of that human touch that often comes from the leadership side, not being willing often to ask questions of how are you doing and leading with that before the conversation of, I notice your communication is really quite negative. I notice that you're giving a lot of criticism and staff are having a hard time working with you, right? If you lead with that, how are you doing? How are things going? Right. Then you have buy-in to work on the communication, but so much of the time it's, it's really just, well, you're being really negative. You're being really critical mm -hmm. and not realizing that that physician is probably struggling, right? Yeah. We didn't go into medicine to be cranky, crispy, rude, not a team player. We didn't do that, right? We want to help people, but often we're judging ourselves so harshly and that is leaking out to other people as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's a great point. And this reminds me of Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey have a book called What Happened to You. You're probably familiar. Yeah, I haven't you. finished it, but yes. The statement that, because this is at the beginning of the book, it said, you know, the whole point of this is not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to what you. What happened to you. Yeah. And simply asking that question instead of what's wrong with you, I think could transform relationships. And Absolutely. that does not kind of solves the, the initial thing of like whose responsibility it is. It simply is like, what is actually the problem? Instead yeah. of saying 
you know, you're wrong. Why don't we just come up with what the situation is? What is the problem? And how do we address the problem rather than making it about the person? Because these are systemic issues. These are issues from training. These are things that issues after COVID. We all have a lot of issues that are challenging. And I think asking it in ways where we can come together rather than us against them, which is so easy to do, the victim villain role. Yeah. But it's easier, it's easier to just come in as that stern parent role, right? Yes. And just be like, you're not doing things right. Mm-hmm. You need to shape up. You're a professional, you go work on it in your own corner. Right. That kind of that really and good luck. Uh, yeah, and good luck. Or or else we're gonna fire you. That really like authoritarian, just really tough thing. And even going back to the what happened to you, I mean, just imagine how medical care would be different too if we if we checked in with our patients on that. I think about so many patients who come to see me after a number of years of challenge. It might be weight challenges. It might be some kind of chronic pain or some kind of other physical symptom. And I'll tell you the leading question that I, that I ask people when they're telling me this whole slew of things is, did something happen to you as a child? Um, Really kind of tapping into that trauma element that is true for so many people or like, how, how was your childhood? Because adults who come to see me, right, and they're suffering from severe anxiety and depression that's never really responded, they're, they're having elements of chronic pain that no one's been able to explain, and they've kind of passed from one place to another. Often there's this component of having had some kind of traumatic experience in the past, and until we sort of really understand that trauma, even if we don't have a perfect solution for it, we can't undo that, right? We're not going to be able to help them in their dysfunction right now. And I think the same is true, right? If if we don't recognize trauma that's happened to us as physicians and we're getting the negative feedback that we're being really crispy and just not being kind to people, if we don't understand, you know, perhaps the trauma of COVID, perhaps other experiences that we've had, we're never going to be able to sort of undo some of that. Yeah, completely agree. So I know that you work with people through things like that. So tell me, take me through what that looks like. How do people find you? What do you do? What's your program like? Yeah. So I do both one-on-one coaching with physicians and allied health professionals. Mostly I work with women physicians, but I have a smattering of, of other folks as well. And we're doing this work on Zoom, chatting and connecting on what are their struggles? What are their thought patterns that are making them feel difficult? A lot of people who come to me first are considering leaving a job, sometimes with something else in mind, something might be non-clinical or just a completely different clinical role. And I help them work through the process of better understanding, like, why are they really challenged right now in their setting? Like what's going on there? What is it that they're wanting? What are those parts that they're bringing, that perfectionist and people-pleasing parts, and how can we work to undo some of that so that whatever they decide to do, whether they decide to stay, whether they decide to go for that new venture or create their own thing, they're coming to it from a really clean place, right? They really understand what they want, what their values are, what the new challenges will be, right? You opened a private practice, right? Owning your own business comes with challenges that most physicians are unaware of 
You got they're, that right. <laughs> they're not insurmountable at all, but it's just a world that most of us don't know, right? It's totally learnable, but we have to understand that we're going to hit those challenges, right? <laughs> it's just it's just part of part of the cost of that that choice. So that's a lot of the work that I do one-on-one with people. And then I also have a group for women physicians, which is based on Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection book. And in that program, we are reading through her book and really learning sort of the 10 guideposts of wholehearted living and sort of how it connects to our medical work, as well as some group coaching and sort of getting into dynamics. And I'll tell you the power of coming together and community you and I were both participants in the EWP coaching program, you know, at one point and the power of coming together with a community that is really centered around physicians improving their lives, right? Whatever that looks like for each of our struggles is just really quite profound. So I love, I love one-on-one work. I love the group program. I think everyone's looking for a little different. Sometimes people don't want that intense focus of just being on them. And so the group is more comfortable. Sometimes people don't want a group. They really want to dive into their issues. And so there's there's something for everyone. I completely agree. Definitely different dynamics. They both can work for the same people, but some people like will gravitate one place or another. So where would they find you? Yeah. So it's easiest for people to find me at my website, which is www.healthierforgood.com. And that has information about my group program, my one-on-one coaching, as well as linked to my podcast, which is Ending Physician Overwhelm. You'll also find me on Instagram, Facebook, Megan Mello, MD. M-E-L-O is my last name. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Perfect. Yes, I was going to make sure to mention your podcast. It's fantastic. The Ending Physician Overwhelm. So important. I was just looking through all those topics and there's so many things that are so applicable to all of us. And so I really encourage everyone to check out your show and consider the program. And Megan, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I love geeking out about all of these topics. (laughs) And I really just appreciate the opportunity that I see so many women physicians like ourselves who are doing this really important work of just saying, listen, this is where we are. This is how we got here. And now let's let's choose something different. Let's learn what we need to learn. Let's unlearn what we need to unlearn. And let's get to feeling better now, regardless of what the systems look like. That's absolutely true. Well, thank you again, Megan, for coming on. Yeah, thank you. For more information on the BOSS Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.